It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 33 in our series of 2022, and today's date is Friday, September the 16th. First, I'll be talking to Jane Leipzig, Cognizant CEO for Australia New Zealand and a director at Contino in Serbia. I'll also be talking to economist Saul Leslie. But now let's talk to Jane Livesey. Well, Jane, the biggest problem with technology facing Australian businesses now is getting the talent. Look, you know, this talent problem has been with us uh, in Australia for some time. And, you know, it's it's like we've woken up post-pandemic and gone, well, you know, we're lacking digital skills. And, you know, what are we going to do about it? You know, it, it stems right from how do we really invest right from a very young age in skilling you know, young Australians around digital and technology, how do we engage with the universities and how do we give Australians an opportunity to really apply their digital skills? And organisations across Australia have got a huge responsibility for this in waking up and not only thinking about how do they conduct their business, but how do we actually collectively get behind this talent and building this talent and capability? Disadvantaged youth, you know, there's many segments um, of Australia who are really ripe and ready to not only learn digital skills but actually apply them in the workplace and it's a big responsibility on all of us to give them that opportunity. I read somewhere that uh, the universities are turning out something like 10,000 IT graduates a year but we're short on 15,000. Yeah and I would say we're short on a lot more than that. We've been really dependent on international markets to give us technology skills both you know, migrants coming into Australia, but also relying on many delivery centres around the world to help us um, with the delivery of those digital transformation programs that we've had. And so, you know, this problem's growing and the demand is only going up and the supply is getting shorter and shorter. So those numbers are true, but I think that we will start to see those numbers getting bigger, not smaller. This is a global problem, is it not? It is a global problem, but I think that you know, we can really see evidence in Australia that, you know, many of the programs that are now starting to emerge, and, you know, today we've got the uh, Jobs and Skills Summit happening. Systemically within Australia, we haven't had a huge investment 
in building technology skills to the degree that we see in other markets. And so, you know, yes, it is a global problem, but Australia is really feeling the pinch now, particularly because we're not relying on that international talent coming into us and supporting us to meet our needs. I would say that what, what this would actually require universities to work closely with businesses and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. And so universities um, and, and also schools, you know, we have some wonderful not only programs with high school students, you know, at Cognizant we work with some incredible NGO organisations that are really focused on helping youth start to build their skills and thinking about how they apply their skills to many, many of the problems. I had some wonderful students come in and work with us through a mentoring program and they were looking at how do they use their digital skills to help solve flooding and actually get um, people the types of tools and information and support they need to navigate flood situations. So engaging students from a very young age, um, from schools, through universities, um, through our TAFE programs, really helping them not only think about the skill that they develop, but how do they apply that skill is something that is really you know, an amazing opportunity for all of us. That would also possibly see businesses take ownership of it. Possibly have, you could have something like a, say, for example, a cognizant boot camp or something like that. Yeah. And look, historically, we most businesses in Australia have some form of graduate program that comes with, with boot camps and training programs and special opportunity. But what we're seeing is that we need that reach to be far broader. Um, so not only do we need to be accommodating more graduates from university and helping them, but actually start to cast the net wider into thinking about what about the students that don't make it to university? Or what about um, mothers who are returning to work and want to reskill and train themselves to re-enter the workforce? How do we start to think about partnering? You know, Career Trackers is a really, you know, another amazing organisation that provides Indigenous internships around digital skills. And so we've got to lift up the stones and, and find talent in many places. Now, what's interesting is you're very much about Australian businesses transforming themselves with technology, but what exactly does that involve and how will that change the business? Look, you know, I, I think a lot of the time when we talk about transforming and digital transformation, we've really seen businesses focusing, and particularly in Australia, on adopting technology. How do we move our systems to the cloud? Um, how do we start to create new experiences for our customers? And we, we've been doing um, quite a bit of research lately, working with The Economist and really looking at modern businesses, both globally and Australia. And, and what we're seeing is, you know, Australia's we're really good at adopting technology. We, we, we're definitely, you know, looking at what are the new advances and how can we apply them to, the, to our business. However, when you're thinking about transforming your business, it really starts with actually what is, our, what is our business model and what is our strategy and what are we trying to achieve and how do we tie that together with the technology to achieve the outcome. And, you know, our research is showing us that while we think about technology a lot, about 70% of Australian businesses are not thinking about sort of a digital first model. And when we talk about that, they're not thinking about how do I bring this technology with the business outcome and pair that together? And how do I create the environment within my organization so that my business teams and my technologists work side by side and collaborate together to actually achieve those outcomes? And that's a big difference um, in terms of what we're seeing globally, where there seems to be a bigger shift in the types of business models and transforming that organisational design to bring technology to achieve the outcome. 
So what you're saying is overseas they're adopting a digital first model that doesn't seem to be happening in Australia. Yeah, a digital first model, but it's really about digital and business combined. You've got it absolutely right. It is really putting at the heart of that foundation to say, look, we've got to bring these two things together so that we can, we talk about speed to value, but how do we deploy those technologies quickly to get the business benefit? And that might be the productivity of your own employee base, or it could be actually creating new digital experiences for your customer by bringing digital products and services to market. And it could also, but it would also mean training your own, own organization in digital technology. Absolutely. And digital skills today, it's it's not like, you know, back in the day, it was the IT department that needed to know about that stuff. And we'd pop down the corridor to them and come with our piece of paper of requirements to say, hey, can you sort this out for me? And it's, this is a skill that everybody needs, uh, maybe not to the same technical degree, but technologies are changing all the time. And we've got to be thinking about as business leaders, how do we actually adopt those technologies and how do we get that impact in our organisation? Now, what sort of digitisation is required for Australian businesses to be able to report on their ESG? ESG is the hot topic of the day. And often when we think about ESG, we're really, everybody jumps to the sustainability and, and clearly it's a hot topic in this market. If you think about this in a business sense, you know, we've been thinking about what is our carbon footprint and thinking about how do we calculate carbon credits, et cetera, as organisations. But a lot of that has been done on a basis of going let's take some samples of information, let's build some algorithms so that we can predict what is happening. With the regulatory changes and really the, the, the strong sense of responsibility that we all feel, and we could see this in the data, 90% of organisations see this as fundamentally their responsibility and ethical part of doing business around ESG, is how do we get real data? Um, so how do we think about what is the strategy and how we want to and act as an organization. What is our data strategy? And then how do we use data platforms to actually model through and really understand truly what is our footprint? And um, if we look at a mining organization, you know, every piece of equipment's got a sensor on it. We're collecting data upon data upon data. And so a lot of what we're doing with organizations is actually taking that data, creating the platforms and really creating the insight into not only what is happening in your organization, but actually how can you respond and react to that information and improve the way that you're actually delivering your services? You'd probably need some sort of AI machine. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Are we using, you know, IoT, AI, algorithms, huge amounts of cloud storage? And so it gets all of the buzzwords that are out there in terms of technology today. But it is really about using the most advanced technologies out there to enable us to truly understand what is the impact that we're having on our environment, even in terms of what are we doing from our social impact, our DNI, and, and enabling that to not only use those algorithms and AI to predict, but also to change what we're doing. You know, and it could be as simple as automatically turning the lights off to how do we actually change the whole way that we're manufacturing or using machinery within our businesses. Well, one of the issues I've found with a lot of organisations on their ESG reports is that one side doesn't know what the other's doing. Look, uh, you know, I, I think it's the, you, you can't, you can look at information and data, you've really got to decide what you're going to do with it. Information is as only as good as what you actually understand out of that data and the way that you act and respond to it. I think in Australia, our boards are getting right into this information and data. They're really understanding it. They're really setting the 
strong framework for businesses to take action on it. And, you know, we can see that, you know, even some organisations now are really leading with it first, responsible banking, etc., um, to really guide the future of their businesses. And which is why you need a digital response to that. Yeah, it, look, the, the, the volumes of data that you need to be able to consume, predict, understand, absolutely, technology is a critical part of the solution for ESG. And you can't do it with an Excel spreadsheet anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> We've, you know, I know back in the day we used to do some wonderful big Excel spreadsheets some days that we'd have to let those uh, queries run overnight to make them <laughs> give us the answer we were looking for. Unfortunately, I think that for these types of problems, we're really looking at some far bigger uh, solutions to help us. Well, Jane, thank you very much for your time. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul Eslake, we had a big week this week with the RBA lifting rates to 2.35%, and we have the speech by Governor Lowe. Uh, what's your, what do you make of it? Well, the Governor acknowledged as he would have to do, that the speed with which inflation has risen in Australia over the past year has come as a surprise. He made the point that it wasn't just a surprise to the Reserve Bank itself, but to a broad spread of private sector and government forecasts, and that something similar has occurred in most other major advanced economies. So the Reserve Bank is now on a path of resetting monetary policy to levels that are more appropriate for an economy that's at full employment, with the unemployment rate now down just below 3.5%, as well as having inflation well above the Reserve Bank's 2 to 3% target band. And they're seeking to bring inflation back down over time to the 2 to 3% target band without pushing the Australian economy into recession, something which he says is a narrow path clouded by uncertainty, and that's undoubtedly right. The market is pricing in something like a 3.3% thing, and uh, the interest rates start coming down. Well, that's that's certainly what the markets are now pricing. I'm not sure that the cash rate will get as high as the financial markets are pricing. If it were to get to 3.5%, we'd be looking at a standard variable mortgage rate of close to 8%, and I think that would significantly increase the risk of Australia's economy falling into recession. I think there are some signs, some reasonable grounds for thinking that inflation will peak later this year, admittedly at a considerably higher level than it is at the moment. The forecasts that both the government and the Treasury have made of inflation peaking at between 75 and 8% are probably right. But I think there are reasonable grounds to think that inflationary pressures globally are approaching their peak and that inflation will actually fall over the course of 2023. Bearing in mind also that Monetary policy works with a lag, and as some other figures out this week have reminded us, the increases in interest rates thus far haven't done much to dampen consumer spending or economic activity, uh, but as those previously announced increases do take effect, I think we will see a significant slowing in the economy probably beginning later this year and certainly continuing into 2023. How confident are you that those rate rises will slow down the economy? Well, it's intended to slow down the economy. It's intended to bring about, as the Reserve Bank says, a better balance between demand, which is still fairly strong, 
and supply, which has been constrained by a variety of short-term factors associated with COVID and um, the absence of migrants and the like, uh, but also to withdraw some of the very substantial stimulus that was provided during the COVID period, which with the benefit of hindsight was kept in place longer than it needed to be. And that's not unique to Australia. That's been an issue in almost every advanced and many developing economies. So the Reserve Bank is not the only central bank in the world that is moving very rapidly to increase interest rates to their highest levels in at least a decade and probably more. The RBA is not the only central bank to get the inflation figure wrong. That's true. Um, or Indeed, Australia's inflation rate, though it's risen significantly over the past year, hasn't risen by as much as in for example, the US or the UK, where in addition to the upward pressure on a range of commodity prices and the disruptions to supply chains that have had significant effects on the range on the price of a range of consumer goods, there's also been in the US and the UK and in New Zealand a significant acceleration in wage inflation, something which so far, at least according to official statistics, hasn't happened in Australia. And the Reserve Bank this week reiterated its determination to prevent that from happening in Australia. So, I mean, Jim Chalmers says, though, we're still facing very tough times ahead. And I think that's undoubtedly right, because we are looking at the fastest tightening of monetary policy since the second half of 1994. And there is a reasonable cohort of people who've taken out big mortgages when interest rates were at record lows anticipating, as the Reserve Bank had said at the time, that they would remain at record lows until 2024, uh, there's going to be a significant adjustment for people who found themselves in that position. And that's where part of the expected slowing in the Australian economy is going to occur. The uh, the government has flagged a review of the central. Uh, what's your view of it? Well, I think that's appropriate. Most central banks in the developed world have been subject to some kind of review over the last decade or so, some of them more than once. The Reserve Bank does exercise significant powers to manage the Australian economy and keep Australian inflation under control whilst also pursuing uh, something approximating full employment. It's not unreasonable to ask whether the Reserve Bank's official inflation target of 2 to 3% on average over the course of the cycle is still appropriate for Australia's current circumstances. It's reasonable to ask some questions about how well the Reserve Bank has done or not in achieving those objectives, and to ask whether the current structure and governance of the Reserve Bank Board, which has really not changed for a very long period of time, remains appropriate for the period ahead. And I, in many cases, I think the Reserve Bank will come out of the review having met most of the community's expectations of it, but I think there will be some changes in uh, in its structure and perhaps in the way its objectives are formally specified. So what changes are you expecting? Well, I think the review of the Reserve Bank's likely to reaffirm the flexible inflation targeting approach that the Reserve Bank has taken over the last 30 years. It's likely to give support to the target remaining roughly where it is. It may express some views about the 
Reserve Bank's responsibility for financial stability and whether it has sufficient instruments at its control to achieve that as well as its other objectives. I wouldn't be surprised if the review makes some recommendations for changes in the way that monetary policy is formulated to give more voices to people who have expertise in monetary policy whilst perhaps leaving the arrangements for governing the Reserve Bank as a business as a significant financial institution much as they currently are. That would suggest some big changes for the Reserve Bank Board. Potentially there could be, either to the board itself or perhaps as has been the case in central banks in some other countries, the establishment of a monetary policy committee of the board that would include more outside expertise in monetary policy making and interpreting of economic development. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's lots of talk of the ACTU coming onto the board. Well, that has been a practice in the past that wouldn't necessarily bring the sort of expertise to monetary policy decision-making that's been evident in the decision-making bodies of central banks in other advanced economies, but there's a case that could be made for that that I'm sure the review will consider. Our GDP figures came in quite well. That would suggest we're still some way off from going into a recession. Well, yes, and at this, case, at this stage, while you couldn't say the risk of a recession is zero, I think it's still relatively small. The Australian economy's still got a fair bit of momentum, partly because of the stimulus that was still sloshing around in the system during the June quarter, remembering that the Reserve Bank only began raising interest rates for the first time during May, and households in particular would appear to have drawn down some of the considerable savings they accumulated during the COVID period in order to sustain spending, and in particular to boost spending on travel and dining out after a long period of being unable to do that. I suspect that subsequent quarterly growth rates in real GDP will be significantly slower than the one that was reported for the June quarter this year of 0.9%. But how much slower? Well, I would think probably in the order of 04 or 0.5% for the next couple of quarters and maybe a little slower than that in the first half of 2023. And uh, our unemployment figure... Will that stabilise at about 3.4, 3.5%? I suspect as the economy slows, and in particular if the immigration intake does begin to rise, that the unemployment rate will drift up from here, probably to somewhere between 4 and 4.5% by the second half of next year. And that, that that is part of how the Reserve Bank will expect to ensure that wages growth doesn't become a separate driver of sustained high price inflation in a way that 
raises concerns in the minds of central banks of uh, the experience that Australia and other developed economies had during the 1970s and 1980s. They don't, as the governor was at some pains to say in his speech this week, want to see an inflationary mindset becoming entrenched in the Australian population because history tells them that that would be very difficult to break. Uh, there are concerns about business, from business about the changes with enterprise market driving up wages. Well, they're still very much in the realms of the unknown uh, and some of what was discussed at the jobs and skills summit in that regard appears to have a degree of acceptance from areas of the business community so we're just going to have to wait and see what evolves there how far the government is going to go down that path okay well we'll saw this like thank you very much for your time that's a pleasure leon good to speak with you so what's happening in the news well u.s inflation was firmer than expected in august likely keeping the federal reserve on track for a third straight 75 basis point interest rate hike. The consumer price index increased 0.1% from July after no change in the prior month. Labor Department data showed on Tuesday. From a year earlier, prices climbed 8.3%, a slight deceleration. Core CPI, which strips out the more volatile food and energy components, advanced 0.6% from July and 6.3% from a year ago. All measures came in above forecasts. Shelter, food and medical care were among the largest contributors to price growth. The acceleration in inflation points to a stubbornly high cost of living for Americans, despite some relief at the gas pump. Price pressures are still historically elevated and widespread, pointing to a long road ahead toward the Fed's inflation target. And Goldman Sachs is planning to implement a round of layoffs in the coming weeks that threatens to result in hundreds of job losses among the bank's employees. In a sign of a deal-making slowdown on Wall Street, Goldman will restart its annual cull of underperforming bankers, which it paused during the pandemic at a time, when banks were struggling to keep up with the workload. The process typically results between 1% and 5% of the company-wide employees losing their jobs, with the impending review set to result in layoffs towards the lower end of that range. At the end of June, Goldman had about 47,000 employees across investment banking, trading, asset and wealth management, consumer banking and operational functions. And King Charles III is not guaranteed to replace Queen Elizabeth II on the $5 note, as the government is yet to decide what will be done, Assistant Treasurer Andrew Lee says. Following the Queen's death, Coins bearing the effigy of King Charles will start entering circulation next year, but Lee said swapping the Queen for the King on the $5 note was not a given. When asked if he was open to the idea of putting someone other than the King on the $5 note, such as Eddie Marbo or Yvonne Goulagong, Lee said those decisions were for a later date. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said he was focused on the Queen's funeral for, for now, rather than the redesign of the $5 note. And consumer confidence softened by just 0.5% last week, despite the Reserve Bank raising interest rates by 0.5 percentage points, according to an ANZ and Roy Morgan survey. And above average trading conditions and profitability push measures of business confidence higher in August. But successive rate rises by the Reserve Bank are damping consumers' willingness to spend money on non-essentials, new data shows. Measures of business confidence increased in August, according to NAB's monthly business survey, and measures of trading conditions, employment and profitability remained above average. And the value of assets managed with a responsible investing, investing framework has risen to $1.54 trillion, accounting for 43% of the total market, according to the Industries Association. In a new survey, the Responsible Investment Association Australasia said there was some $2.06 trillion in assets under management that have been self-declared as practising responsible investment. However, research conducted by EY for the association ruled out some $521 billion, which failed the scoreboard of measures. The RIAA provides a certification scheme for responsible investors. The survey also found that performance concerns were the strongest deterrent to the responsible investing market for survey respondents, followed by a lack of viable products or options. 
A lack of trust and concerns about greenwashing will also significant deterrence, the survey found. And a waning COVID-19 pandemic and the easing of health restrictions have pushed online retail down in the past three months, while traffic is up in shopping centres and at omni-channel stores. But a broader shift online, traffic rose 23% in the 12 months to August at a basket of 54 retailers tracked by analysts at investment bank Jarden, has been a major boon to Amazon. The online store has lifted its share to account for more than 40% of all online traffic in Australia. In a note on the retail sector, Jarden analyst forecast will overtake eBay as the most visited transactional site in the country in the next 12 months. The other major online winner is Flight Centre, according to the research note distributed late last week, with traffic increasing by 167% last year. Travel and soft goods were the only two categories that saw a rise in online traffic in the three months to August, the former boom to increasing 377% in the period. The analysts, led by Ben Gilbert, said the negative online traffic trend reflected the cycling of lockdowns in the previous corresponding period and was consistent with credit card data produced by Commonwealth Bank as behaviours taken up during the pandemic began to unwind. Online penetration, excluding food, is back to the pre-COVID trend as stores reopen, with this set to benefit malls and omnichannel retailers, wrote Mr Gilbert. By brand, traffic was the strongest for Flight Centre, while soft goods improved. Kathmandu was up 30%, City Chic up 16%, and Just Jeans up 12%, with Mitre 10 up 25%, and Nick Scarly up 9%, stronger also. And competition between cashed-up farmers and corporate investors for prime farmland is expected to drive rural property prices up more than 20% for a second successive year before growth starts moderating from 2023, according to Rabobank. That rosy outlook is a chief finding of the Rural Lending Specialist's latest Australian Agricultural Land Price Outlook report and comes as ABES, the research arm of the Department of Agriculture, forecasts at least another $80 billion of farm production this financial year and as farmers prepare for a likely third consecutive La Nina summer of heavy rains. The challenges of rising interest rates, higher input costs and already elevated land prices are expected to slow the market down for next year, but the bank does not anticipate any price corrections under Base case forecasts. Rural property transactions tracked by Agritech company Digital Agricultural Services indicate that land prices have increased more than 25% so far this calendar year, the Rabobank report said. Arable cropping and dairy farmland increased by 27% in 2021, and grazing country rose 33%. This suggests full-year 2022 sales will easily yield double-digit growth. The size of land deals is also continuing to increase, said the report's author. Rabo Research Annual Manager for Australia New Zealand, Stefan Vogel. And Alan Joyce's last year running Qantas could be the most lucrative in his 14 years as CEO, according to disclosures in the annual report and notice of annual meeting released on Friday. If shareholders at the annual meeting approve the grant of 698,000 performance rights issued under a special COVID-19 retention plan, Joyce will be in the running for a benefit of $3.5 million, given the rights have a fair value of $4.98 each. To convert these rights into shares, Qantas must have cut costs by $1 billion, have net debt within the range approved by the board, and report an underlying profit before tax. Joyce is also entitled to about $1 million long-term incentive plan performance rights, comprised of 371,500 rights under the 2020-2022 LTIP, 325,500 rights under the 2019-2021 LTIP, and 343,500 rights under the 2018-2020 LTIP. All of these shares have vested, but Joyce and the Qantas board agreed to defer the decision on conversion until at least August 2023. If these rights were converted to shares and sold at today's price, they would be worth $5.2 million. Joyce's base salary for 2022 was $2.2 million and will be the same in 2023. 
He has not earned a short-term incentive for two years. But if he earns one in the 2023 financial year at a maximum rate of 120% of base pay, he will pick up $2.6 million. If the stars align for Joyce and for Qantas, which is not certain given the chaos besetting the global aviation industry, he will earn a remuneration and share package totaling about $13.5 million in 2023, which would exceed his previous record pay of $10.86 million in 2018. And tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure slated for the next decade, much of it in the regions, could be under threat in the next two budgets as Treasurer Jim Chalmers searches for savings ahead of the October 25 budget. A sweep of regional programs promised to then-National leaders Barnaby Joyce in return for his party support for the Coalition's net-zero carbon emissions by 2050 policy are also being reviewed by the government as it comes through past Morrison's pledges. Joyce boasted in June he had secured nearly $30 billion. Few of the funds and projects announced in the March budget were officially signed off before the swift move to an election campaign, and none had begun construction. The government's ongoing rorts and waste audit is scrutinising all these funds alongside grants and infrastructure pledges. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told business leaders last week that the October budget would see cuts in the discretionary funding that had been allowed to surge under the coalition. And the nation's super funds turned negative in August as markets were hit by central banks' efforts to dampen rampant inflation. The median balance option delivered a return of minus 0.5% in a month, driven by losses across developed markets, according to Research House Super Ratings. It comes after funds swung to a positive performance in July, with a short-lived recovery in equity markets boosting returns after a volatile June. The 12-month return illustrates a challenge facing the nation's biggest investors. The median balance option returned minus 3.8% for the year through to August 31, while the median growth option returned minus 4.8%. Over the month, the median growth fund returned minus 0.4%. Super Ratings Executive Director Kirby Rappel said investment performance in the month was hit by higher interest rates across developed markets. Central banks have been pushing through rate hikes for months in a bid to get inflation under control. The Reserve Bank has hiked five times in as many months, pushing the cash rate from its upper low of 0.1% to 2.35% to dampen demand and keep a lid on rising prices. Economists are expecting the central bank to hike at least a couple more times in this cycle, bringing the cash rate above 3%. Meanwhile, central banks in the US and Europe have been on a similar path to get inflation back to target, to little avail. Inflation in the US is tracking above 8%, while in Europe it sits at 9%. Australia's inflation rate is about 6%. And IFM investors will turn the screws on Australian airports, ports, roads and hospitals to slash their carbon emissions to avoid a 40% collapse in asset values. IFM has already set a 2030 interim emissions reduction target of 40% on its infrastructure portfolio from 2019 levels as part of a commitment to reach net zero target by 2050. IFM has a stake at Vienna, in Vienna Airport, which has Austria's biggest solar plant. IFM also part owns Melbourne Airport, which has completed a solar farm with 30,000 solar panels that delivers 15% of the airport's electricity needs. The Future Fund also found in recent research that insured losses from natural disasters had increased from about US $10 billion a year in the 1980s to US $45 billion in the last decade. And huge surges in cybercrime, including ransoming, fraud and data theft, will leave Australia 30,000 cyber professionals short over the next four years of what is required to cover the security needs of the country, according to new research. Over the next four years, the shortfall in qualified cyber security professionals is forecast to hit 30,000 unfilled positions across Australia. This is four times the number that has been quoted by industry and industry groups previously. The figure is revealed in new research commissioned by CyberCX and undertaken by independent think tank per capita. 
Cybersecurity skills are now in shorter supply than cloud computing and cloud infrastructure, and Australia faces a fight for talent from more developed markets in the US, UK and Canada, the report said. It also noted the anticipated growth in workforce management shortages in Australian cybersecurity, database management and ICT, information communications technology, Security exceeds 38%, outstripping forecasts for care and software development. The report said the current Australian cybersecurity workforce was around 68,400. Domestic and international evidence put the current shortfall at 25,000 to 30,000 positions that will be needed by 2024. Both estimates appear to be derived soundly, with the National Skills Commission estimates based on ABS Labor Force so that, that survey data, the report said. One of the glaring gaps that needed to be tackled was the gender distribution of cybersecurity workers. According to the NSC, women make up just 21% of the workforce. Universities and TAFE have been doing heavy lifting in terms of bringing qualifications and curriculums up to date. However, graduates were not job ready and completion rates in TAFE, particularly in ICT engineering, were declining. And cyber insurance premiums have soared in the past year as claims surge in response to a rise in damaging attacks by hackers. The cost of taking out cyber cover has doubled on average every year for the past three years, said global insurance broker Marsh. Honan Group, another broker, pointed to an 80% rise in premiums in the past 12 months, following a 20% increase in the cost of cover in each of the previous two years. The chief reason for the price rises is the increase in the number and size of claims relating to ransomware, where criminals use malicious software to block access to an organisation's computer system until the sum of money is paid. It is estimated in the past year, 38% of cyber incident claims in Australia involve ransomware payments. And the Star Entertainment Group has been found unfit to hold its Sydney casino licence, following a damning inquiry into its suitability, but the regulator has yet to determine whether the group will be stripped of the licence or subject to further remedial action. The New South Wales Independent Casino Commission, or NICC, published Adam Bell's SCEVES report on Tuesday, which found the Star unsuitable to hold a casino licence in New South Wales. The, the public was, inquiry was launched after the media alleged in 2021 that the Star enabled suspected money laundering, organised crime, large-scale fraud and foreign interference in Australian casinos for years, even though its board was warned its anti-money laundering controls were failing. Alleged money laundering, criminal infiltration and fraud took centre stage during the inquiry, which led to the resignation of Star executives including former boss Matt Beckier and Chairman John O'Neill. Star had claimed a significant overhaul of its senior rates made it suitable to continue holding its casino licence. And pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson will pay $300 million to women who suffered chronic pain, psychiatric injury and internal injuries from the company's defective pelvic mesh implants as part of the largest product liability class action in Australian history. The landmark settlement follows the Federal Court declaring Johnson & Johnson negligent over the testing and sale of the implants in November 2019 after a seven-month trial. While the number of women expected to receive payouts is yet to be confirmed, there were 1,350 in the original case and Shine Lawyers, which ran and funded the matter, expected for thousands more to join at the time. At least 8,000 women reportedly had the implants in Australia and more than 100,000 globally, with many already receiving or currently fighting for compensation over the same procedures overseas. $300 million would help women pay for treatments for the injuries caused by the implants, said Shine Lawyers Class Actions Practice Leader Rebecca Jankowskis. An intern faces an investigation over whether it failed to comply with the responsibilities to combat serious and organised crime over at least four years. In a move that could that could see the corporate bookmaker face tens of millions of dollars in fine. The investigation by financial crimes regulator Ostrac 
will focus on whether it has complied with its obligations under the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Act. Austrack also said it had been assessing other corporate bookmakers and that its supervisory campaign with corporate bookmakers sector may lead to other areas of focus in this sector. While it is listed in the London Stock Exchange, Entame owns a Labbrokes and Ned's betting brand in Australia and, as a corporate bookmaker, mostly operates online wagering brands. Entain is also one of the finalists in the bidding for the West Australian Wagering Licence that is up for sale with a $1 billion price tag, peaking for the asset with ASX-listed Tabcor and BetR. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Damien Anderson, ANZ Country Manager for HiBob, the company behind Bob, the HR platform, transforming how organisations operate in the modern world of work. He'll talk about HiBob's mission and vision and what it means for Australian business. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if, if, and if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.